Hello, everyone. I'm Tech Sergeant Shane Hughes, and you're listening to Beyond the Horizon, a podcast produced by the Ohio Air National Guard's 178th Wing in Springfield, Ohio. Today's guest is Lieutenant Colonel Paul Cavanaugh. He's the commander of the 178th Wing Operations Group, and today we discussed his career and his thoughts on leadership. I hope you enjoy the show. Sir, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Go ahead and start off by telling us a little bit about why you decided to enlist and how that led you to where you are today. Sure. Like most of us, I come from a legacy of military service. Uh, so from a young age, I always wanted to pursue uh, a career, at least do my part. Uh, so I had the opportunity to enlist in the uh, Connecticut Army Guard, um, and I did that while I was in high school. I was fortunate enough to get uh, an appointment to West Point, so I attended uh, West Point from uh, 99 to 03. I commissioned as an armor officer. Uh, I wanted to fly, but my eyes weren't good enough. Uh, luckily, a little bit of PRK took care of that. After I completed my time in the Army, I still wanted to serve. I did a deployment with them, and I found that the Alaska Air National Guard was hiring, so I applied for a pilot position with them and flew C-130s with them for a while. Unfortunately, like many units across the Guard, we faced a BRAC, and I was fortunate enough to find Springfield and the uh, MQ-9 mission, and just, it, it fit. It fit for my family, it fit for my career. That's why we're here. The application process just to get into West Point is fairly rigorous. Would you go ahead and tell me a little bit about um, what it took for you to apply to West Point, get in, and then what your experience was like while you were there? Sure. So, yes, you need nominations. And fortunately, my father was a warrant officer in the Army. Uh, and there's a little known additional way to receive an appointment, and that's through a presidential nomination. So with if one of your parents is a commissioned officer, at least this was the case back in the late 90s, you can also apply for a presidential nomination or a vice presidential nomination, in addition to your state senators and representatives. So I applied. I was fortunate enough to get presidential nomination. And luckily, I, I think my, my experience in the Army Guard really prepared me well for uh, repeating basic training over again that next summer. It helped me frame what I was experiencing. And it gave me the opportunity to take a step back and really enjoy where I was. Of course, it wasn't fun by any stretch of the imagination, but there were those moments when you appreciate that you're walking where many, many famous and heroic people have walked before you. And just to be a part of that legacy was very humbling. The application process itself is very straightforward. They want you to succeed. They want you to apply. They, they offer a lot of help in filling out the applications, and there were parents' clubs and, uh, that, would, that would hold information nights, uh, which, I, which we all found very helpful. And that was my big takeaway. That, that's something that I realized, that they want people who want to be there, uh, and they want you to succeed. So all in all, it was, a, it was a very straightforward and albeit regimented process. You need to identify early in your life that, you want to do that. Like in your junior uh, junior year, you really want to start thinking about that. So what is one of those moments that you mentioned that really stands out most vividly in your mind? I think it was 
What, well, are you talking about being a part of the legacy of West Point or yes. wanting to apply? Um, there are several, uh, there are tons of opportunities. It just, you don't always realize it when you're going through it. There are those times, uh, on the weekends when you're walking, uh, from the gym back to your barracks or you go to trophy point and you look back and you can see Washington hall and the monuments and it just, it humbles you to to be that small part of it because you know there are thousands that are going to come after you and there are thousands that came before you um, but to be there in that moment it just it hits you it hits you at army navy it hits you um, when you complete your road marches coming back during uh, beast barracks it hits you when you get your ring on a hundred and during a hundredth night um, and it hits you when you throw your hat up in the air I'm really fascinated by the West Point part of your story, as sure. well as a couple other aspects of your story. What was the biggest challenge you faced while at West Point? Academics. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I, uh, I did not apply myself academically. I was so focused on graduating and commissioning. I wanted to be a helicopter pilot. That's all I wanted to do. And I didn't take my academic studies seriously as far as how they would benefit me in the future. And I never appreciated how the, how academics builds on itself. Um, I didn't take mathematics very seriously. Uh, and I, I struggled with it. Um, it made, I ended up having to go to summer school while at West Point. So that was my biggest challenge. It was developing the self-discipline and having the maturity to know that how important that would be later in life. Uh, I just didn't have that at that time. Uh, I just wanted to graduate. I just wanted to be a second lieutenant, and I wanted to fly helicopters. And what did you learn from that experience? Looking back, not flying helicopters, not being in the Army, uh, I would say what I learned from that experience is I didn't appreciate time as a commodity when I was when I was that young, uh, that you don't get it back, and that you need to make the decisions in the present for the future you. And I just didn't have the foresight to do that when I was 20-something years old. All right. Would you mind telling me a little bit about your time as a platoon leader in Iraq and how that shaped you as a leader? Sure. My initial assignment out of uh, armor school was to the uh, 172nd Striker Brigade. We were based in Anchorage at Fort Richardson. The rest of the brigade was up at Fort Wainwright. So we were a separate battalion in Anchorage. We had no buildings. I was the third person into the company. Uh, we were all sharing a one office, and I remember using the computer box that the computer came in as a desk. That New Year's Eve, we got 100 soldiers in all at the airport at the same time. Uh, so we were standing up a brand new unit with a brand new vehicle. We were the second, I believe, uh, to field the striker uh, infantry combat vehicle. So it was uh, starting from scratch. Nobody had worked together previously. It was, we were all coming together. I was fortunate to have a wonderful platoon sergeant who took me under his wing uh, and, and helped shape how I interacted with the soldiers and how to be successful uh, within the company, uh, to understand what my place was and, and, and how to apply the lessons that they they told me about at West Point, but how to actually do them uh, came after I got to the unit. Uh, 
we deployed to Mosul in 05, got to see the first election there, and we were there during the rise of the sectarian violence. We were able to move out west to Talafar for a little while. We were about two weeks from coming home when due to the rise in sectarian violence, the SECDEF had us extend uh, our deployment for another couple months. So I had no vehicles. We were a couple hours from getting on the plane to come home and we were told, nope, you're going to Baghdad and you need to be operational in three or four something days. So we had one platoon that was back in Alaska, one platoon that was in Kuwait and the rest of the company with me in, in Talifar when we moved to Baghdad. And I would say that was one of the, one of the most impactful moments of my military career. And it wasn't getting the news that we had to extend and that we weren't going home. It was the hours after that when there was kind of like a collective silence. And every soldier to a man was just like, okay, sir, let's, let's just knock this out. Let's do what we have to do. And that was the most eye-opening thing to me about what it means to be in the military. Would you expand on that a little bit? Sure. The was the selflessness, the collective selflessness that just shocked me, right? Because for days we'd been talking about going home and we had been mailing home all our equipment and extra stuff that we'd bought at the PX and like everybody was getting rid of their little AFES pogs because we didn't need it anymore. We we're going home, uh, talking about families and vacations and seeing pets and what kind of car they were going to buy. Like it just, everybody was focused on themselves those last couple of weeks and what they were going to do with their time off when they got home. Uh, and to have to change that 180 because the mission wasn't complete. And I'm, I'm, I know there was tons of internal struggle and disappointment, but collectively as a unit, they came together and didn't complain. They went about their business they got their weapons ready and we got ready to move. And it just taught me about when, when we talk about the treasure and wealth of the country, like the blood and treasure that we spend in combat, like it truly is the people are the treasure. They are the blood and the treasure. Like it's just that to have that collective personal quality struck me in those moments. I just wanted to continue to be a part of it. So I'm really interested in the dynamic between you and the first platoon sergeant. Sure. Um, would you tell me a little bit more about some of the things that he taught you and how he helped bring those lessons that you learned at West Point to um, the reality on the ground? Sure. Criticize in private, praise in public to include when you're training your officer. Uh, but he, he always gave me the opportunity to lead there was never any question about who was in charge of the platoon. And I didn't come to appreciate that until I got to see other platoon sergeants who would take advantage of the inexperience of the younger lieutenants. And it just created a terrible dynamic when you don't have unity of command. Uh, so we were always a team. And, and from that point forward, it made me appreciate how important it was to have a command team and to leverage the experience that you don't have yet. Like at some point in your career, you will have that experience. But in that moment, I didn't. Uh, so yeah, he shaped, like you, you'd have disagreements with how the company was being run or what the training schedule looked like. And 
you don't always appreciate the bigger picture, but using his experience, he could kind of explain that to me. And it, it just imparted that little bit of wisdom so that it wasn't such an emotional response for me. And I found that, that that's one of the biggest strengths of uh, the NCO core. And it, it crosses over into the air force. Absolutely. And I, I see it here and I get to experience it here too. Like it's, it's the, it's when they are able to share and articulate their experiences over 20 something years, 17 years, 15 years to somebody that only has like three or four, it, it makes a big difference. What was your biggest takeaway from that experience? You will never know everything. And even your perception is just your perception, right? Like that, that's just from your point of view. So it helps to have another point of view that you don't always see, right? Like you, you take for granted that if, if somebody comes to you and they're talking to you, there's no other ulterior motive than they're just talking to you. But you don't appreciate how the dynamic changes as a, as a leader or as a commander when a soldier will be, they might be willing to talk more to a senior NCO or something like that. Like there's, it just, and you don't get that point of view not not from any nefarious intent or anything like that. It's just it changes the dynamic. Like when you walk into a room and everybody stops talking, like you, you don't get those point of views. But in order to make the best decision that you can, you need to have different point of views and you need to appreciate uh, other perceptions of, of how your actions are being perceived. And you can't get that unless you have a strong relationship with your NCOs. And that was a big takeaway from that first platoon sergeant. So... You started out in the Army and then came into the Air National Guard. What was that transition like? I was just thrilled. So I completed my my six years in the Army, and I applied for a a pilot position in Alaska. And that state does their hiring a little bit different. At that time in the late 90s, I I just remember uh, you're applying to the whole state and then um, there are representatives from all the different wings and the from the two different wings and the airframes that are there and you put in your dream sheet and then it, if you get a call back it, it might not be for your number one or two choice it might be for your number three um, but just to be chosen it was just I, I didn't know what to expect um, so I was just thrilled to get the call back like and to find out that the C-130s, the slick C-130s, the E-models e at the time, I was just so happy. And to be going back to Alaska, I'd, I was living in Texas at the time, and I was just so excited to get back to Alaska. I don't know if that answers your question. I kind of just got lost in nostalgia. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's that's fine. That's fine. So uh, what was it like to transition from? Oh, yes, transitioning, right? So I remember the first time I got my Air Force name tape sewn on and put a patch on the pocket for uh, PACAF and I, I didn't even know what PACAF was and I took a picture and sent it to all my army buddies like look at this guy right like I have rank on both collars that's so weird there's no branch insignia so it, I, it was the transition was I, I, I think I got lucky that I didn't well let me go back I think I got lucky that there were a lot of experienced guardsmen in the unit that kind of took me under their wing and I not only didn't I speak Air Force, I didn't speak Guard either. And um, I'd only been in the Army Guard for a year and change before I went active duty. Um, so I was I was starting fresh, 
but I was wearing captain insignia and I just felt like I needed to be a fly on the wall and absorb and listen as much as I could. So I enrolled in SOS prior to pilot training, just so I could learn a little bit more about the air force, even though I'd already had credit for that PME uh, from the army, but I, I knew I was in a different place. I knew they spoke a different language and I just tried to be all ears and no mouth. And that was, I think that made my transition a little bit easier. So with that, when you started at Alaska National Guard, you were flying C-130s. You then transitioned to our base and started flying remotely piloted aircraft. I can only imagine how different that must have been. Would you speak a little bit about what it was like to transition from flying airlift to flying RPAs? During that time, CENTCOM was a very active AOR, and I wanted to get involved again. When I learned about this mission and I learned about the unit here, I was very excited to have a more active role. Uh, I did deploy with C-130s uh, to Afghanistan uh, with Alaska. So I'd, I'd been to Iraq, I'd been to Afghanistan, both in person. And then to, to find this mission set, it amazed me at the capability. It amazed me the air crew that were in the unit and the squadron. I just, I felt so, so impressed that we could have effects from Ohio in a different country and do that persistently. Like it just, it, I felt like this is the leading edge and I wanted to be a part of it. So I, to answer your question, yes, I missed, uh, I missed assault landings. I missed CDS drops. I missed heavy equipment. Uh, the aeromed missions I totally missed. I, I, my Marriott points took significant hit, like, but I was ready for a mission change. Uh, and, and again, as I got older, when you look at time as a commodity, right? Like at some point it's not going to be your choice to take off the uniform. And if you have the opportunity to do something that you want to do, you got to just, you got to seize it. So I know it was scary to leave the familiar AMC life and not transition to another, uh, airlift platform, but I knew I only had a couple more years to go and this just was amazing to me. Um, so I, I looked at fear of something different and, and luckily got accepted, uh, into the squadron here. All right. Now I know you've just taken over as the ops group commander, so you can't really speak to what you've done yet, but what are your plans for the ops group? So when I think about the operations group, like the, the talent pool that's in this unit is incredible. What I think is going to benefit us over the next couple of years is if we, if we provide momentum to our predecessors, in your whole purpose is to provide momentum to your predecessors. So that's what we need to do in the ops group is, is provide that momentum for who's coming next. And how do we do that? It's, it's by alleviating the unnecessary um, obstacles and frustrations that we have in our day to day to be able to focus on uh, the tactical changes in TTPs, to be ready for great power competition, um, 
to be able to focus on that training so that when you come into work, that's all you have to think about. Um, because the interactions that you have across the base with other agencies are all smooth. Um, you have supervisors and leaders that you trust. You're in a safe environment where you can work and you're just, your, your focus is on your part of the mission. That's what I want to continue for the ops group. Um, like I, I had great momentum from the commanders before me. I want to be able to provide that for the commanders that are going to come after me and alleviate, yeah, or enable that focus uh, on the mission for the members of the ops group. All right, so you've led troops, both in the Army and in that Air National Guard, in person, in multiple different wartime theaters, and over several operations. What has all that experience taught you about leadership during a crisis or just leadership in general? I fall back to this anecdote from uh, General Schwarzkopf. It, it comes out of his book and several of his talks, and I found it to be true. When in command, take command. You have to make a decision, make a decision. And if you don't know what to do, you do what's right. And you, you have to leverage the experience that you've gained like over time to be able to determine what's right, right? That's what our ethics and our morals and our, our ROE and our rules and regulations, they all guide us towards what's right. And we all know what it is in the moment. Like you can never predict what right is because you don't know what that, what that problem is going to be in the future, but you just have to choose what you think is right in that moment. Now, could it be wrong in hindsight? Absolutely. It can totally be wrong. But the worst thing to do is to not make any decision. And there are times like when you make decisions by counsel, by consensus, and there are times when you have to own it completely as the commander and bear that burden. Um, and that is your responsibility as a commander. So I think being open to all those different facets of making decisions and doing what's right carries across the the services the size of the units the difficulties that you face you know I'm, I'm just reflecting on our recent covid missions and our hospital missions and how you know i i think uh, how earlier i was talking about being extended and just accepting the mission like that call to serve we don't get to choose when it comes we've all volunteered for it and it could come three days before christmas in peacetime when the state needs you and it can come when you're 10 hours from getting on an airplane to come home after a year overseas it just it happens it just it it arrives we don't get to pick it i just lost my train of thought sorry that's all right <laughs> <laughs> yeah we don't we don't get to pick when that call comes um but what i've learned as a leader in all those different circumstances and in different things is that we can we can rely on the treasure that our country has in the service members that have volunteered to answer that call. And I know that sounds, I don't know, like a military Hallmark card, but it's, but it's totally true. Uh, I can say that after uh, 17, 18 years of service, uh, that's just what I've seen. So in your view, 
What defines a good leader? It's one of those things like you, you can see, you know, when, when <laughs> you know what bad leadership is, it's hard to define good leadership because there's so many facets of leadership. And I think a good leader is always a work in progress that meets the call in the moment is what a good leader does. Um, a good leader, you know, challenges people to be the best that they can be, to maximize their potential, to give them those opportunities to do that. Because we don't always like to challenge ourselves, right? Like if I have, if I have to choose between going on a five mile run or like watching the news and drinking a cup of coffee, like ooh man, like I struggle with that discipline a lot. But a good leader helps you and holds you accountable and makes you maximize your potential. We benefit from good leadership. You don't benefit from poor leadership. So I think that's what a good leader does makes you better than what you were. And so what advice would you have for young airmen, whether enlisted or officers who are just now beginning their careers in the military? Know that your career will come to an end at some point. It may be your choice. It may not be your choice. Uh, So with the time that you do have, don't shy away from pursuing what you want to do. Don't self-select out of an opportunity um, because it's different, because it's something new, it's, it's, it looks cool and I want to be like that, but I'm afraid that other people are going to think I'm silly for wanting to do that. Like you, you just you have to put that aside. The military gives you the chance to shape your career. We may not always see it in the moment, but it's there. And you, it, it just takes a little bit of initiative to, to do that. My advice would be, Work hard in the moment because that is your application for what you want to do. Um, So be the best at what you're doing in the moment. Prepare and train for what you want to do in the future, right? Like going back to that, make your decisions in the present for the future you. You may not know what the future looks like, but you know who you want to be in the future. You know what kind of person you want to be in the future. So work towards being that that type of person in the career stuff will will fall into place. You are your own best advocate and don't be ashamed or embarrassed of pursuing what you want to pursue. You just, you have to do it because at some point, like I said, you will take the uniform off and you won't have that opportunity. And the only thing you'll be left with is regret and resentment. And that's no way to live. What book has had the biggest impact on your life? Oh man, there are so many, but the biggest. It's okay if it's more than one. Sure. Uh, About Face uh, by Colonel David Hackworth, uh, retired. Uh, That had a big impact on me as a junior officer. Uh, Lessons with the Bear. Uh, I can't Gus Lee is the author. Uh, he was a cadet at West Point and was tutored directly by General Schwarzkopf uh, in between Schwarzkopf's tours uh, to Vietnam. He came back as an instructor uh, and tutored this this cadet. And it talks about their interactions and life lessons and things that he learned throughout his career. Once an Eagle by Anton Meyer, absolutely. And I think those three are like my my 
big ones that have had an impact, yep. That concludes today's episode of Beyond the Horizon. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, make sure you subscribe and leave us a rating and review. If you're looking for more ways to connect with the 178th Wing, you can check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also write to us at beyondthehorizonpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, keep your eyes on the horizon.